There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Look at him. Made his first jump when he was 15. Countless other jumps after that. In 1966, hurt himself in Indio. 1967 season. Thomas, here he goes, and he will go. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the Enterprise Editor at the Times. Today, we're going back to the topic we started last week, which is called Finding Great Ideas. This is part two. We have, Lane has a session that she has taught over the years, and she's got 20 pointers for how to find great ideas, things she says your editor would never tell you. So last week, we covered the first 10, and we're picking up with number 11, which is give everyone your phone number. Really? <laughs> everyone? Yeah, I, I didn't used to like doing that, but now it's kind of become second nature. And so, you know, they started making us put our phone numbers at the bottom of our stories about 15 years ago, and, and that was a pain in the butt because a lot of weirder people just call you with non-story ideas. But if you set to 17 and you get two, then it's worth it. You know right. what I mean? So I, I find most people don't really know reporters or what we do, especially general assignment reporters, and so they don't think of sharing or pitching story ideas at you. So the lady who cuts my hair, the guy who fixes my car, my kid's little league coach, like everybody I come in contact with, I make sure that they know that I'm a reporter, that I like telling human interest stories, I like writing about people in the shadows. Um, I gave my card to a lady at the subway one year, and uh, one day, and, and three years later, I come get a phone call from her like I do a turkey and cheese on on wheat bread three years ago and I have a story I think you might be interested in I mean bizarre she kept my card at the subway all these years and called me with a pretty good story idea so yeah I, I think you know you have to listen to a lot of crap but it pays off sometimes number 12 is be late yeah, I, I don't know your editor would want you to use that tip, um, <laughs> but I think a lot of times the really good stories come after the news or when people have the chance to put the news into some sort of context, you know. Um, the story that made me want to not be a reporter anymore, um, not be a news reporter anymore, was a, a quadruple fatality on Christmas Eve and Christ no, Christmas Day, and uh, the early morning of Christmas Day, and I had to go with the... Um, state troopers to knock on the door of this grandmother's house and say, hey, you just lost your daughter and all your grandkids. How do you feel? And at that moment, I didn't ever want to be a reporter again. I didn't want to be there on that door. I didn't want to be talking to that poor grandma. I didn't want to write a story with some stupid can quote. I mean, what are you going to say? You just find out your, your daughter and your grandkids are dead. And I wanted to go back the next year. I thought, man, next Christmas, this would be the story for this woman to be able to really eulogize her family and really talk about what Christmas means to her now. Um, so I, I keep a file on my desk of things that have happened in the news that I want to go back and 
tell a deeper story about. Um, we had a big news story here uh, about 10 years ago about um, city manager of Largo. Uh, one of our reporters got a tip that he was becoming she. He wanted to transition and become a woman. And I went the night that the city council fired him basically for being untruthful. <laughs> That's what they fired him for. Um, and waited till all the other news trucks and reporters left. And I said, I, I want, how long did you know that you were supposed to be a girl? And he said, oh man, since I was like 14. And I said, that's a story I want to tell. You know, we covered the news, we covered the sensation, we covered the sort of the, the legal ramifications, but no one had sat down and told the story behind the story. Um, so my story came out about two weeks afterward and was much, uh, much more um, in depth with this man's journey. Uh, you know, I love that pointer because I think that we have um, in our business, we, we're so focused on what happened this morning, what happened yesterday, or even last week, and we. There's so many times, like you said, there's there's some emotional event that happens, and you know people in that moment, you know, they're just processing it. They're not even, they don't even really understand a lot of what has just gone on. And and if you come back to it and you revisit it, there's so many interesting aspects that you can get to. And I and I and I think we're driven by sort of the culture of news that it. If it happened too long ago, it feels dated, and yet you know that so much of the ramifications play out over time. And so, uh, yeah, I think that's a that's always, a, and I think everybody, every beat reporter should be on the lookout for things that they should come back to because whatever decisions are made, whatever whatever happening there is, who knows how it all plays out. Yeah, and a lot of those um, stories, people wonder. Mm-hmm. You, know, you don't yeah. think readers will wonder, but they do. Yeah. Uh, number 13, work holidays. Yeah, I think, okay, any of you young reporters out there who want to A1 narrative story, pick a holiday. Like every single year, I pick a different holiday. Almost every year I do Mother's Day. I love doing Mother's Day stories. But you know they're going to need a front page story for whatever holiday it is. So find a holiday and then challenge yourself to take whatever risk you want to because it can't be wrong. If you need an Easter story, find a story that no one's ever done for Easter before, you know, and you're guaranteed to be on the front page. Uh, you remember some of your favorites? I, I did one I loved about um, a little boy picking his first Valentine out. He was 12 years old. He'd never liked a girl before, and he had to find the perfect Valentine for this little 12-year-old girl. So it was just going to the Hallmark store with this 12-year-old. Um, I did a Mother's Day one. My favorite Mother's Day one was I was like, okay, I've written about single mothers. I've written about old mothers. I've written about young mothers. I've written about foster mothers. Like, whatever and I have written about? And I was in a sorority, and I always wondered, like, who the hell would want to be a sorority mom, you know? So I called around at the University of Florida, and uh, lo and behold, they had one fraternity that still had a house mom, Kappa Sig, and this lady named Mimi had been the house mom for, like, 40 years, and she lived in the basement of the frat house. So I did a Mother's Day story about the mom living in the basement of the Kappa Sig house while the guys were up playing foosball, and they tag her door with all this graffiti, and she had a little humble statue inside. It was just such a fun story about a mom to these 75 frat boys. I remember one we did together years ago where you followed a family as they picked out a Christmas tree, and you watched them bring it back, and you watched them put the ornaments on the tree. And you're right. It's like, okay, here's this ritual that um, uh, it'll get itself onto the front page because editors were desperate around the holidays. But also, it's like, it's also these are things that matter to people. And I think they, I mean, it'll resonate a lot of the times. Yeah. Uh, Number 14, take stories no one else wants. I think that's one of the ways I, I was in a bureau for seven years uh, before I joined Maria's team um, and got to really write narratives for a living. And I think 
one of the ways I was able to get out of the bureau and the little B section and onto the front page was to take a story that I knew nobody else was interested in and do something special with it. And, and um, so I kind of challenged myself to do that. We we had one here. It was a press release. Like, I mean, a lot of my press releases where some editor flings it at you because someone's got to cover this. You know what I mean? There's something in there. And it was about a um, Go Red for Heart Disease campaign. And this design school <laughs> in Tampa was going to make red dresses for women with heart disease to show at a fashion show. Yeah, boring, right? Nobody wants to do this damn story. So it went from the medical reporter to the higher education reporter to the sort of society page reporter. And I was like, just give me the damn thing. I was tired of listening to people kvetch about it. I was like, I'll do the story. And I went to the thing at the design school where they were basically going to show these old ladies these dress designs to pick out to wear for the fashion show. Well, one of the old ladies was a 17-year-old who had two heart transplants, and she wanted to wear the red dress for her prom. So in this boring-ass story of a press release campaign, I found a little girl who wanted to get a prom dress. And in the course of reporting the story, we got permission to go to the prom, talk to her boyfriend, talk to the school. We were going to, that was going to be the culmination. She wears her red dress to the prom. Well, before the prom happened, her body rejected her second heart, and she ended up in all children's hospital. And I still get the shivers when I'm thinking about this. All of her friends who had, were going to go to the prom with her had rented a party bus, and they came and gave her a prom at the hospital. So she's tethered to her IV pole, and she's dancing with her boyfriend in the hospital and we got this wonderful huge front page story and everybody paper was like how'd you get that story how'd you get that story and i was like yeah you guys remember that crappy press release that nobody wanted to do i got that story so you never know you know and it, it, it would have been a fine story if she hadn't had the problem at the hospital but it was an amazing story because she had the problem at the hospital uh number 15 is look for the bruise on the apple yeah, I gotta give credit to this and shout out my old editor, Mike Wilson. This was his um, his mantra for me. I I, I really like writing um, happy stories. You might not know that from my from my not lately stories, but um, and he he would point out that uh, okay. A, a, if an apple looks exactly perfect, it's probably not real. Um, it's probably made of wax or wood or something. But if you can find a little wormhole on the back or a bruise, then that shows that it's real and legit. So the more perfect your person you're writing about, the more destined for sainthood they seem to be, the more important it is to find something that's human about them or that's uh, a failing on their part somehow. And it's people don't offer that up. You know, they don't go, hey, I'm this really great person, but I did this crappy thing, you know. So and in order to get, a lot of times that comes from somebody else, you know. Ask my mother, she'll give you all the dirt you want on me, you know. It, it comes from somebody else usually. But if you want to get that person to take you there themselves, I think a really great, uh, almost like fail-proof question is, what do you regret? And everybody has something they regret. And that lends you to be able to talk to that about talk to them about that without chastising them, you know, or condemning them for some reason. You sound like a therapist almost. <laughs> a lot of our job is being therapists, you know? Um, so when we're talking about looking for the bruise on the apple, it, it leads us to evil Knievel, of all things. Um, uh, Lane, when she does this talk, tries to do uh, examples of stories. She uses examples of stories she's written in, and she got a chance uh, several years ago to profile evil Knievel. So tell people why you were even writing about evil Knievel. <laughs> a, a retired 
staff writer, called the newsroom and said, I am at this Regions Bank in Clearwater, and I'm in line behind Evil Knievel. And everybody in the newsroom went, oh my God, Evil Knievel's still alive? Like, it was like a news flash. And he'd wheeled his little oxygen tank into the bank. And so this former reporter had gone to the bank manager and gotten a card. And uh, I said, I, I grew up watching Evil Knievel with my dad. I am not a sports person, but my dad and I would watch Wild World Sports and watch him jump I was so, so excited to get to go meet him and um, took my favorite photographer, knock on his door and he knew we were coming. We called him up and he was all about come on over tomorrow morning at 11 o'clock, whatever, whatever. And we got there and he was so mean to us. He was yelling. He's the first thing he goes, give me a beer. It was like 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, okay. <laughs> he was just like, he didn't feel well. He was broken. He was sick. He knew he was dying. And he was just nasty as F to us. And to the point that the photographer was trying to set up lights and take his picture. And he was telling her where she could stand and what lights she couldn't current turn off. And finally he got so fresh that he picked up all of her stuff and threw it out in the hallway of the condo and closed the door on her. I mean, he, he, every question I asked him, he was like, well, you don't think anybody's ever asked me that question before? I've been doing this for 50 years. What kind of stupid question is that? And, like, and I'm like trying to take notes and I'm cracking out. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Tears are falling on my notepad, and I'm like, I was so flustered because I was so in awe of him, and he was so nasty. And so we get to the parking lot, I'm crying in my car, and I call my editor. Like, you would believe these awful things he said, and he threw us out. And my editor said, did you write it down? <laughs> he was like, totally not sympathetic that I'm bawling in the car. And uh, I was like, well, yeah, I wrote it down. He goes, well, there's your story. You know, he, he's reacting to a stranger in this way. You have to capture that. And um, he made me put myself in the story, which I really didn't want to or feel comfortable doing. But um, it sort of set the scene, you know. I remember I, you and I had a conversation soon after you went to talk to him. You called me up and you were like, Oh my God! Evil Knievel doesn't like me, and like she's like everybody likes me, and it's like well, Evil Knievel's a dick. I mean, it's just like so. Um, but uh, anyway, like okay, so read 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 for folks the beginning of your story on Evil Knievel. The old daredevil ticks back in his recliner, nursing a blue lollipop. His small white dog Rocket slumbers in his lap. On the Food Network, a chef is shouting. Evil Knievel grabs the remote, fumbles with the buttons. Blasted thing, he growls. I can't turn it down. He slams the clicker on the table beside him, buries his face in his hands. I spend my days right here, mostly, he says, without lifting his head. It's been three weeks since his second stroke. He's always tired, sometimes addled. Knievel is 68, but has the body of, well, of a man held together with pins and plates. I used to go all over the world, he grumbles. I used to travel eight months a year. Now I can't even drive. He takes 11 pills in the morning, a dozen at night. They keep his blood flowing and his transplanted liver working. 
They ease the arthritis that burns his back, arms, and legs. It hurts like hell being mortal. It's a hot morning in July. In two weeks, he's supposed to fly to his hometown of Butte, Montana for the annual festival in his honor, Evil Knievel Days. He'll wave from the passenger seat of a pickup, sign some autographs, try to impersonate the man he used to be. This is my last performance, he says, if I make it. If I make it. How many times do you think Evil Knievel has said those words? Usually he did make it, piloting his motorcycle over cars, snakes, sharks, buses. But we remember him just as well for the times this cycle came up just a teensy bit short. Knievel scattered pieces of himself at Caesars Palace in Wembley Stadium in San Francisco's Cow Palace. He was the first jackass. <laughs> did you, um, did, I don't remember, did he read it? Did he react? Do you have any idea whether... <laughs> did. Okay, so I wrote this story. We followed him to Butte, Montana. We didn't know where he was going, and as soon as he told us that, we're like, okay, now we have a scene. You know, something he's aspiring to do. We, so we convinced the editors to send us to Butte, Montana for Evil Knievel Days, and when he got there, he got really sick and had to go into the hospital. So we thought we'd have five days to tour the town with Evil Knievel and show us his old haunts and, you know, be where his boyhood mm-hmm. cycle writing started, and he was in the hospital the whole time. So they basically, like, propped him up to come to this $100 plate dinner. He waved to the crowd, and then he went and got in his car and drove away. And um, he called my editor. I was um, I was out of town right after that ran, and he called my editor and told him how much he liked the story and asked for another dozen copies. And then, like, two days later, he died. So wow. he liked the story, which is crazy because he's an asshole in the story, but it must have rung true for him because he wanted more copies, so... Okay, moving on to number 16. Lie on the floor, climb on the cabinets. Yeah, that, that tip actually came from, like, watching my children <laughs> trying to figure out, like, what are they doing down there? Like, getting a different perspective on the same old scene. You mm-hmm. know, like, like my son, I remember my son yelling at me about how dirty the top of the refrigerator was, and I was like, I've never seen the top of the refrigerator <laughs> before. I don't know if it's dirty or not, you know, but kind of getting... Do people look there? <laughs> but I, I think, you know, especially... I mean, sometimes you got to tell the same type of story again and yeah. again. It really helps to have a different uh, framework or a different lens to focus um, on. You know, where do you, where do you start your story, or who's your main character of your story? And so, just kind of picking a different perspective to tell it. Number seventeen. Listen to the quiet. Yeah, that kind of goes back to sit the bench. Uh, another tip on there, but not being afraid to let things unfold, um, waiting people out sometimes mm-hmm. instead of trying to fill in the silence. Like, I think I have a natural inclination, like most people probably do when you're having a conversation, to, like, not let there be dead air, mm-hmm. you know? So if it's quiet, you want to fill it up with something, or you, you ask somebody a question, they don't answer right away, so you want to give them some props, well, is it like this or like this? And it's so much better of a payoff if you can wait them out and let them the and the story might go in a different direction too. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, number eighteen is go along for the ride. Yeah, this is basically like just get the heck out of the office, go wherever your person is going. You know, even if it's just the most mundane thing imaginable. Like I, I mean, I've gone to little league games to sit with somebody, and I can't go. I can't talk to you tonight. My kid a little league game. Okay, I'll come to little league game. Can't talk tonight. I gotta go take my car to the shop. I'll come sit the jiffy loop with you. You know. And one night I was trying to interview this old nun. She kept putting me off and put me off and put me off. And finally, she's like, "Well, I have to take my poodle to the groomer." 
And I'm like, oh, I like poodles. Oh, come along. <laughs> I thought it was going to be a little tiny poodle. And it was like a two-seater car with a standard-ass poodle that sat in my lap the whole way. But damn, the men talked to me. And while the poodle got quaffed, we had a really nice interview. And so just being able to go be with the people on their territory and letting them know, like, you are not afraid to walk a mile in their moccasins. This is Lane DeGregory's life. I'm driving with a nun to get her poodle groomed. Okay. <laughs> Who has a job like that? Okay. I think one of the times I realized, like, how much that pays off sometimes in ways you don't even know. You know, I, I want to be there because I want to be there. But um, I was riding with a man. This man delivered vegetables and hard-boiled eggs to bars. This is my bar story that I got. And this man rolls in about 6 o'clock with hard-boiled eggs and, and vegetables. And he's like, well, none of these people ever eat vegetables. So at dinner time, I come given a healthy option besides the pig feet on the bar to eat, you know. So I was like, well, can I ride with you, you know, as you do your drive along from bar to bar? Oh, there's nowhere to sit. There's only a milk crate in the passenger seat. I'll, I'll sit on the milk crate. And while he drove around, he listened to this tape of his dead wife singing Patsy Klein songs. And I didn't know he had a dead wife, but I didn't know he kept her with him. And that was like his connection to her. You know, I never would have thought to ask that question. Number 19, take small bites. Yeah, I think um, a lot of this kind of goes back to be late to like finding a different way to tell a story, um, finding a tighter frame to tell a story, um, finding a piece of a big story. Um, they sent me and a photographer to uh, the place where Trayvon Martin was killed, where he lived. And everybody and their brother had written Trayvon Martin stories from the national media, you know, all the way down. And we were two days later, it was like, what the heck am I going to do with this story that hasn't already been done, you know? So I was very, very conscientious about, like, what's different? What can I find that's different? And we sort of snuck into this gated community through the back door where people were coming in and out. And um, one of the first people that I saw was a mixed race lady about my age who was walking a big pit bull. And I walked up to her and I said, oh, what a beautiful dog. You know, I have a pit bull at home too. And we started talking about the dog. And she said, yeah, my son's supposed to walk this damn dog, but he's 15, mixed race, wears a hoodie, and he's terrified to walk the dog in his own neighborhood now. And I was like, oh. There's a story we haven't told. You know, here's a person who lived in this community whose whole life was upended by this tragedy, even though she didn't know this kid. And, you know, but it was a whole different window into this national story to tell a very, very personal story about this woman walking her dog. Okay, and finally, number 20, don't be afraid of yourself. Yeah, I have never been one of those people who likes to write first-person stories. I... I don't ever think anything in my life is half as interesting as in the strangers that I meet and get to write about. So I pretty much have to be told to write a first-person story. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not usually like, hey, I got this thing that happened to me. Um, and the first first-person story I wrote was shortly after I came here. I think I was 32 or 33 years old, and uh, I was driving my kids back from a wedding in Atlanta, and I thought they were asleep, and I got. Rolling Stones on the radio, and I'm jamming out. It's pouring rain, and all of a sudden, I hear my little boy in the back seat start screaming. And he was like two, and he was like, "Oh my god! Oh my god! It's terrible! Bobo just flew out the window!" And Bobo was a stuffed elephant. And um, so then I had this whole mom thing: like, do I teach the stupid kid a lesson and leave his damn elephant on the side of the highway in the rain, or do I be a hero and like turn around, and go back and rescue Bobo? And so I was telling the story. We have a at our 
news meeting the next Monday morning and I was telling the story before the news meeting started and everybody around the table was like, oh my God, my kids, you know, Raggedy Andy, oh my God, I had a curious storage and like everybody had a bobo, you know, everybody had a, a stuffed animal that was like their, their touchstone growing up or their kids did. And so my editor, Mike, says, Lane, just shut up and go write that story. And I was like, what story? And he goes, you need to go write that Bobo story. Like, everybody's talking about this. And five minutes before this meeting, you've got this whole room telling their own Bobo story to go write that story. And I didn't want to. And he made me. And I spent about, I don't know, three hours on it. And it got more, other than the girl in the window that won the Pulitzer, it got more response to any story I've ever done. I was going to say, so we're going to end today on I Break for Bobo. Because it really was, um, I think because it was, it is so universal and the, the dilemma was even like universal. And I think, um, um, it's, it's a great story. Uh, so this is the beginning of that story. You guys are welcome to track, track it down and get to the end. But, um, here's how it, here's how it started. Okay. We've been on the road for almost eight hours, me and my two boys. We were driving home from my cousin's wedding in Atlanta. Well, I was driving. Rye, who's six, and Tucker, who's four, were strapped into their car seats in the back seat. It was past 10 p.m. It was raining. I was riding the right lane of I-75, about 11 miles north of Brooksville, figuring we had about another hour to go. Then Tucker starts screaming. I don't know where he starts screeching like he's been shot or something. What's the matter? What's the matter? I shot, gripping the wheel with both hands. I turned down the radio, look up into the rearview mirror. Tucker's thrashing around in his car seat, straining against the seatbelt, beating his fists against the car door. So Rye starts screaming too, both of them in stereo, wailing and railing in the back seat. There's nowhere to pull over, no exits in sight. In the darkness, a metal guardrail is rushing past on my right. Semis are speeding by on my left. What's the matter, I cry, almost in tears myself. Please, boys, what's wrong? Mommy, Rye whines, and he chokes on his sobs. Mommy, he tries again. It's horrible. You won't believe it. Bobo just blew out the window. So I'm sure inquiring minds want to know, is Bobo still around? Oh, you guys are going to have to read the damn story. No. <laughs> Actually, I sent Bobo off to college with my son Tucker last year. Aww. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> she did. She pulled back off, put herself in jeopardy. Uh, all right. So uh, thank you all for listening. If you have a question for Lane, uh, please email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next episode. This podcast was produced by Denise Keenan. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.